Museum of South Texas History preserves and presents the borderland heritage of South Texas and Northeastern Mexico for all generations. Hello, I'm Pamela Morales de Hendricks, the communications officer for the Museum of South Texas History. Thanks for listening to Stories from the Rio Grande, a podcast featuring people and history of the borderland region. This season, we're featuring veterans and two museum staff members. One happens to be a veteran, and the other actually shared stories about veterans in a spotlight exhibit titled Hometown Heroes of South Texas, a Veterans Day exhibit, which was on display during the month of November 2022. The reason we decided to feature veterans this season is because the Valley is known for being one of the highest population of veterans in the country. One could argue one of the most patriotic regions in the nation. So we kind of discuss these topics with veterans in upcoming episodes. In this first episode, we meet Ray Leal. He is Iraq War veteran. Ray is also an Edinburgh native who talks a little bit about growing up in the city and the reason why he became or why he joined the military. And also he gives a really interesting details about going into the Iraq war. So just a couple of notes and a little warning that this episode does contain some language that may not be suitable for children. So if you want to listen to a bleep version, we definitely have that one up already as well. Just look for the same title and it is followed by bleeped version. So here's Ray. I don't come from a, a history of military service. Like, both of my parents are immigrants from Mexico. They both came here in the, the 70s. So it was quite the experience growing up, you know, like American, but like always Mexican, always, always visiting home. So because I didn't have a history of military service, I guess like in Mexico, sir, like being drafted is like a bad thing. So you try really hard not to get caught up in all that, right? So ending up in, in the military where my family's from is like a bad thing. Like this is something awful. It's just not a good thing. So, you know, when I come to my mom my senior year, like I think I want to join the military. But it was seen as this like, you can't do this to us you can't do this to me you're my only son you know my my tias and tios are like what are you like this is not a good thing you're just gonna come back all crazy so I didn't join right out of high school and I actually was able to go to Bowling Green State University in Ohio and was up there for like a semester and a half when that Afghanistan was already going on, so Enduring Freedom was already going on, but in March of 2003, that's when they kicked off Operation Iraqi Freedom. And I remember watching that war. I remember watching those battles on TV in in college and was like, I don't belong here. Like, I just don't belong here. There's, I'm not doing anything. I'm not, 
fulfilling anything. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at college. I need to do something else. So when I got back home, I didn't ask for permission. I didn't ask for advice. I just walked into the recruiter's office in McAllen. Like, tell me how I can enlist in essentially how how can I go to war? How can I do this? And he was like, okay, yeah, yeah, all right, let's go. And I was, I had done really good on my, ASV, what's called an ASVAP, which is the test, the placement exam. And I could have done whatever job, X job. And I was adamant that I would join the infantry. You don't need a high score, so... It was like, you can do other things in the Marine Corps. And I was like, the only reason I walked in here, the only reason I want to do this is so you can send me to an infantry unit. I start February 22nd, 2004. I'm in San Diego Marine Corps boot camp. And like I said, I had, I was forced to grow up a lot earlier when my father died. So I felt uniquely capable and ready for, you know, these drill instructors yelling at you, you know, getting up in the morning, thinking about it now. Then it was probably the hardest thing I'd ever done. Now it's probably the easy, one of the easiest things I've ever done because you just sort of just do it. And then I remember coming back home for like seven days. My family was like, well, what's going to happen now? Oh, well, I have to go to the School of Infantry first and then... You know, they'll probably, they will send me to a unit, but I don't think they'll send me to Iraq right away. I remember saying that. So boot camp is three months. School of Infantry is two months. I graduate School of Infantry, and the day you graduate School of Infantry is the day you get assigned your unit. And so there's several units. It's broken down by division, regiment, battalion, company, platoon, right? And it's like me and maybe like 10 other guys are like, you're going with 3-5. And I had no idea what 3-5 was. Like, it's just numbers to me at this point. They're battalion 5th Marines, which is a point of pride. Every Marines, every Marine will talk about their unit with, with pride. You know, so 3-5 uh, was the only unit I was with because I only did one, one enlistment. Uh, two deployments, one enlistment with 3-5. And uh, we get there, it's uh, First Sergeant Knox. We're all standing there in his office. And he's like, Kilo Company is on pre-deployment leave. These are the things you need to do. When you do all these things, you have seven days to go back home. When you come back, we're going to Iraq. This is in early September. And all my friends were like in, back at college. So I come back home and nobody's here. There's no, like, good luck, bud. Like, it was just me on the couch in my trailer home. But it was like, you know, you really do... I don't think you ever think you're going to die. You just maybe want to feel a little bit of that, like, a little home before you take off. It was like... It was important. It was important. I remember it being important that I go back home.
hardcore when you're new when you're a pfc and you're new to a unit you're they call you you know your boot i don't know if you've heard that term before but that's sort of like the catch-all term for a new guy like hey boot come here or boot do that or they don't even call you by your name they don't even they don't even call you by your name and it takes a lot for them to like go from calling you boot to calling you leal or or then when you pick up rank now lance corporal corporal sergeant leal right so when we get to iraq that first time we are at camp baharia which is a smaller camp by camp fallujah so there was this battle for Fallujah a couple months a couple of months prior, and they had had to pull out because it just wasn't feasible for them to take the city with that many civilians. So our first mission was to secure what are called military supply routes or MSRs. So the main one that ran across the north side of Fallujah was MSR Mobile. They had constructed sort of these towers and these like outposts all along the military supply route. You know, and our job was to make sure that insurgents weren't trying to get out of the city. And we were also making sure, or f- we, every time we'd drive by, we'd have a shootout with the north side of the, the city. So every time we drove by, we'd have this shootout. It was almost like a drive-by. But our big one was no IEDs on the road. So we would go patrol the road and patrol the little villages on the outside. This was all September and halfway through October, and then halfway through, through October, the army comes and relieves us, and we're told we're taking the city. So now we're going into like preparation mode for the biggest urban combat the Marine Corps has been in since Hue City, since the Vietnam War. And up until that point, I felt like I had been in Iraq, but I didn't feel like I had been to war because we, I hadn't. It's interesting because when you're having these little drive-by altercations and you're finding IEDs, you don't ever see anybody. You don't see anything. first thing we did was take an apartment complex that was on the north side of the city. That apartment complex was phase one, and we took it without any incident. Like, there was people, uh, and by the way, the whole month leading up to this, they were dropping leaflets, they were telling people, get out. Get out of the city. Don't, don't be here. So people were leaving the city, and that next day, I remember vividly, not the day that we took the, the apartment complex, that happened like that. The next day, we step off, and we're walking into the city. And there's, like, Cobra helicopters going over. There's explosions going on. We can hear, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's like, you know, artillery is going off in the city. And I'm walking. And that's the first time I ever thought I was in war. I was like, this is, this is war. And I felt really stupid for wanting it. I felt really dumb. At that point, for like a second, I was like, you're a fucking idiot for wanting this. This is what we, this is what you trained for. This is what you wanted. This is why you signed up for the infantry. And for like a split second, and I felt it again, but right there, you know, I definitely felt it. I was like, I don't know if you're going to make it out of this, dude. And you can't say these things out loud. You can't tell people that. Like, you can't tell your sergeant, like, hey, I don't know about this, right? So... I imagine we're all scared or we're all like maybe not scared but 
we're all hesitant, like, oh, because none of us had seen this before. Nobody, the Marine Corps hadn't seen this before, not since way, right? So the idea of going house to house, kicking in every single door, getting in fights from, from me to you, not faceless shots coming from houses as we drive by, but like real up close and personal fighting. And then we get to the first house and we just start kicking in doors and we start, you know, all those artillery shells, all those, you know, the C-130s, you know, sprint, you know, just laying waste to entire blocks. And you start seeing dead bodies. You start seeing pieces of people. You start having shootouts. You start, you know, seeing combat. And there's this, that hap- that was November November 8th when we went into the city. So normal Americans, if they watched the news at that time, probably thought that we had we were done with Fallujah like two weeks in. But our unit was there all the way till the new year, all the way till after Christmas. We actually saw the most fighting when we did what's called back clearing. We had lost a few guys to injuries and KIAs in that first push. But we lost in the the second back clearing. It was uh, December twelfth when we lost five. We lost five KIAs and I think it was like fifteen injured. December twelfth, we were just we were just doing some back clearing, and the day was over. I we were walking to the schoolhouse, and that's where we were gonna spend the night. And so. They had given us, because the schoolhouse was here, they had said, well, what we need to do is clear all these houses that are around the schoolhouse. And we go up this first house, and we hear, like, AK fire. It's not in our house. It's in the next one. So we all go into that house, and we find the other part of 3rd Squad there. And I remember them yelling that, Lance Corporal Stewart was upstairs and well, you can hear him screaming and you can hear him yelling and we're mounting like we're getting ready to go up the stairs and fight and we see like these grenades come down the stairwell just like and it, to me it was like in slow motion and I turned to go towards the hall the living room and I just see like all these Marines like there, like yeah. we're all going for the same thing. And I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die here. And I look over to like over my shoulder and I see the restroom and I just dive into the restroom. Me and Miska, Lance Corporal Miska, we just dive into that restroom and the, boom, you know, the grenade goes off. We hear another explosion, another explosion. My team leader at the time, Corporal Holly, he gets his leg like blown up by the grenade. He's out at that point. We start getting like Sergeant Kirk comes in. He starts asking like, you know, where's everyone? Like I'm in the re- I'm I'm over here. Run to me. Okay, so like I run from the restroom to the uh, to the living room. I slide in, and I hear more explosions behind me. And he sends me Piaski. He's like, go back to the house that we were in and see if you can't shoot from on top. So we take off, leave the rest of third squad there, 
And as I'm going into this house, this other Marine just like falls. And I'll always remember it because I'm about to come in and he falls out of the front door into my arms and his whole, like his whole side of his face is like open. He's been shot like through the cheek. So now I have this guy in my hands. I'm supposed to go up, but I can't because I have this guy in my hands. I now take him, take him outside of the, onto the street and I call for a corpsman. When I'm calling for a corpsman for this guy, this other Marine from my, from my platoon, Lance Corporal Voorhees, comes out of this other house. He was the radio operator for our platoon staff sergeant, Staff Sergeant Blazer. Staff Sergeant Blazer, Voorhees, Sergeant Fisher, and I forget who else. I think it was like Lance Corporal Wall. They had gone into this other house to see if they could get eyes on and maybe like direct everything. There were insurgents in there and they had ambushed them and they had killed Staff Sergeant Blazer on the second floor. So now Voorhees was out like, he was outside freaking out. I run into that house. We clear the bottom because we had we didn't know if they had cleared the bottom or not. And then I find Sergeant Fisher on the stairwell. We were trying to group up a certain amount of people because you can't just go up. Like you need a certain amount of people to clear a house or else you're just gonna get you're just gonna get killed. And so I come up and Sergeant Fisher's like behind this like little wall to my left. And there's three doorways to his left. And they're shooting at him from inside these rooms and he's just like and the the rounds are just going there and then staff sergeant's like right in the middle. So I go over to where staff sergeant is and I stand over him and I start shooting into these three rooms. Two under rounds, just and he comes out from where he's at, crawls behind me, grabs staff sergeant, and he's and he pulls him. And he's pulling him towards the stairwell to take him out. And I'm just like, controlled. I'm not just like, you know, it's not like Rambo at the end where he's just like, ah. I'm just like, and I'm going back and forth, back and forth. And I'm imagining in my head that I'm just keeping all their heads down, right? They're not able to shoot up. And if they are, they're shooting high. We clear out that, that house and pretty much once we cleared everyone out of all the houses Sergeant Kirk died that day Staff Sergeant Blazer died that day Stewart died that day Corporal Claire Day from 2nd Platoon died that day and Lance Corporal Lopez died that day from 2nd Platoon and we lost like 15 guys from injuries you know blown up legs blown up arms shot up everywhere and I remember coming back out to the street, there's like Humvees and tracks and everyone's just lighting. We're coming out and they're just lighting these houses. We clear out further back and they start dropping, dropping bombs on these houses, just like boom, boom, like big ass bombs. And I remember like crying that night, like by myself, just thinking like that was like, way too close and just like just out of just 
not even like fear or anything, but just like the release of all of the adrenaline. Like you were way up here and then it was just this dump. And I just remember just like, and the next day we had to clear those houses again. And we found still, you know, and we, I, we, I guess killed the last of them that next day. And we still, and we lost guys the next day, not, not KIA, but like um, Sergeant Gonzalez got, got hit that day. So, and like I said, we still lost people from first platoon on the 23rd of December. So we were just, everything was just like, the whole city was on fire. We were getting in firefights. We were losing guys. It's interesting, but I had been a boot up until that day. Before we had taken off to the city, I wrote my mom uh, an email. And I said, like, you're going to see some stuff on the news. I don't want you to worry. I want you to know that no news is, is good news at this point. So if you don't hear about me or from me, consider it good news. And so when January rolls around and we finally go back and we sort of, like, assess, like... Oh, we're not who we were two months ago. Guys are missing. Guys are dead. New guys are here, right? And we never really had a chance to, like, grieve or say, oh, I miss this person or, or I wish we would have done this. or We didn't have time. Immediately, we roll into now letting people back in the city. In February, they had their first elections in that city. We're like, one minute we're essentially destroying that city, and the next we're like, yeah, come back in, let's rebuild it, right? So that deployment lasted seven months from September to ends of April, early May. And then I remember leaving and coming back home, and it was the most surreal experience of my life. Um, it, it's like being in space and coming back. Like I've never been in space, obviously, but it's like another world. And then you go to the mall for the first time and you're like, what the hell? Like, what's going on? Like, you just don't understand, like, how everything could still be the same. Like, how you could leave for seven months, experience the worst things possible, and then you can come back to your country and everything is exactly the same. Nothing has changed. Everything is exactly the same. As I'm, there's only one thing that did change, and that's just how people perceive the war. So I remember when I was first signing up, I was like, good on you. And then when I came back, it was like, why would you do that? <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. Why would you even consider that? And that was that, was that first deployment. It was incredibly... Um, people talk about post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic growth. And I feel like the post I've experienced that all through my childhood with my father being killed, with growing up poor, with all those things, where there's a part of you that wishes it had never happened. And, but then there's this part of you that understands that the reason you are who you are is because those things happen. So there's an element where you've grown, fairly or unfairly. It doesn't matter how you want to look at it because it doesn't matter. Life is 
doesn't really make those distinctions, right? It just it these things happen in life. So you're worse off for them. And you realize that you're worse off because you didn't grow up with a father during a certain time. And you're worse off because you saw the things you saw in combat. But you're also the man you are or the person you are because of those things also. So there's a reason why you why I look at things the way I look at them or the, there's a reason why when I went back to college after two deployments, it was a lot easier than the first time I went to college. The second time I went to college, I was a straight A student in environmental science and communications because it just didn't seem that hard anymore. Like that part just wasn't that hard. I don't think I could have done that if I hadn't seen all the really hard things that I had seen. So you lament the loss of life and you and it still hurts but you also understand like i don't know if i could be who i am without those things and that's a very hard thing to say because i think we all want to and to a certain degree we all want to feel for ourselves we all want to be like you know this was not good this was unfair and at the same time Would I be who I am without these things happening to me? And I can't tell you for sure that I would be. And that's a really hard pill to swallow. That you, that I have to almost admit that the most painful experiences of my life caused me both the most pain and made me effective and efficient at everything else I've done. Is that why you went back that second time? Well, the second time, because you have to. Oh, you have it's an to. enlistment. Oh. It's an enlistment. So the second time, for eight months, we trained. They award me the bronze, the bronze star with a V. A month after that, uh, I picked up corporal meritoriously. I then was assigned a team. I was a team leader. And then we go to the second deployment. The second deployment is right outside of Fallujah, in this area called Zidon. And that's where all the insurgents that had left the city during eight months before, that's where they were sort of like regrouping. So we're doing we're doing raids, we're doing counterinsurgency, we're doing a lot of patrolling. We're getting in firefights. Now this is like back to, you know, L-shaped ambushes, 200, you know, 100, 200 meters away. It's not no longer like right here you can't see them anymore now we're finding IEDs so it's all back to like the old right the old way you know it kind of feels like you're not doing anything kind of just feels like you're treading water on some of these deployments you're just kind of like as long as you know you don't stop treading because if you stop treading you drown so you're just kind of like moving your legs and your feet non-stop for eight months for seven eight months and then finally at the end we're like that was good we did good. And we didn't lose anybody. That second deployment. Got home and was just like, yeah, that's it. I made it. <laughs> and then you just gotta figure out like how to transition out and picked up sergeant. And then really started thinking like, do I re-enlist? Do I, do I still wanna do this?
people ask me if I miss it, and I was like, I miss being a Marine. I don't miss the Marine Corps. So I talked to some older guys and realized that it wouldn't be what I had done for the first four years. It would be a lot different. You kind of put your life in the Marine Corps' hands, and they make decisions for you. And once I got married and had a, had a child, I was not ready to give up my decisions to this broader organization. I was ready to make my own decisions. I had given them the decision-making ability for four years. I had done exactly what I had gone out to, you know, like, set myself out to do four years before. And it was time for me to, like, take control of my life. And not, and anything that happened to me and my family would be my me and my family's decision and not like the Marine Corps decision because I had seen a lot of families go through that and some of them make it some of them don't and I wasn't prepared to do that right so we get out we actually got out in the middle of like right before the Great Recession right so February of 08 and they were like you're nuts and they were throwing I think it was like a $60,000 bonus to resign like bonus like you would get paid and here's a check for 60,000. And I remember having the conversation with my wife like I don't I think if I get out I can make that money. <laughs> like it won't be right away, but I think if I get out I think we'd be okay. And she was like, "Okay." And so it took us a while to gather all our things and get out of California, but we finally came back home to Edinburgh. She's from here too. It took me a while to get back to school also. Just until uh, 2009, the beginning of 2009, the spring, is when I started going to STC. And college at that point was a breeze. It was just too easy. Uh, then I transferred over to UTPA and then just went from there. So, but yeah, that's my military experience. that you didn't have the time or I guess the space to grieve mm -hmm. and I wonder what made me think is I mean obviously everybody needs to grieve and they need that space but I also wonder culturally because I feel like in our culture we respect the dead mm -hmm. I guess, like, I'm just wondering, was was that the reason why it was impactful for you? Or, like, I mean, I'm not saying that nobody else was impacted by that, but the fact that you bring that up, because I've met a few people in your same situation, and they kind of have never really mentioned that. So that's why I was curious. Yeah. No, I think it is important to grieve. So I've done a lot of growing up since then. And I've realized that it's actually a big part of other cultures, like ancient cultures, native culture, powwows, the Israelites, why they, after they came back from war, they actually stayed outside of the cities for a certain amount of time. There is, in different cultures throughout history, rituals, there are processes of reintegration after combat. There are ways of celebrating 
not just celebrating, but also coming to terms with loss during combat. But the way that thing, the way that things work in combat, and the Marine Corps is very clear about this, even in, in boot camp. So there's two things: there's troop welfare, and there's mission accomplishment. Troop welfare doesn't come before mission accomplishment. Mission accomplishment always comes first, then troop welfare. A good leader always looks at mission accomplishment, but also finds time for troop welfare. Grieving is part of troop welfare. Has to be. Cannot be part of mission accomplishment, right? And so there is this delayed. It's like uh, everyone has done this when they're kids, right? You have a hose and you pinch it, and all that water gets stuck there, right? And then you let it go, and there's this like sudden rush out. That's grief after you've bottled it up, not because you feel like you know you saw the macho and whatever. You've literally just held it there because you had to, right? It's a necessity. You cannot freak out. You cannot take even a little bit of time to grieve if you have to clear a house now. So you have to just get cold. Know what you need to do next. You know, maybe you had your cry out on the out on the side at night, but the shit's over. We're going up the stairway. So, are you okay? Because if you're not, you need to go back over there. Because you can't come up here in this house. You can't compromise us. So you got to get your shit together like real quick. The mission accomplishment comes first. I will, I will give it to my a lot of props to our battalion commander at the time lieutenant colonel malay and sergeant major resto they when we came back we had what was called a valhalla night where we all got together all the whole battalion and we we had these a ceremony to remember those guys like you know yeah there was beer we were like there was this like there were all these events and there was like this moment of camaraderie before we got sent out. So right after you come back from deployment, you have what's called post-deployment leave, where you get to go back home, right? Uh, but before that, there is this moment of like decompression, right? And I think they know, you know, you don't just get off the plane and then let Marines go to the nearest bar, like right now. So there's this moment of decompression. And it, uh, I remember it was called, it was called Valhalla Night. And we were all out there on this beach. There's food, there's beer. Um, we have memorials to all the guys, which is like the, the rifle and the helmet and the boots and the dog tags. So we did have this like sort of like release. And every, you know, every year we have our own way of like, everyone has their own way of remembering and grieving. And just a couple of weeks ago, I actually went up back to Camp Pendleton With um, met up with a bunch of a bunch of guys from first, second platoon, some guys from third platoon, and weapons weapons platoon. And there's this hill called First Sergeant's Hill. And after the war in Afghanistan, they started putting these like memorials up on First Sergeant Hill. These like crosses. And so we all got together, and we took a cross up there. We placed it and put a bunch of you know put all like the plaque shows all the guys that we lost in. Um, 
that deployment and then the second deployment we lost some guys not in not in our platoon but in other platoons and um, some jump platoon guys um, but we've we do things like that now to sort of come together it's like um, it's like a different kind of family there's the family that obviously you grew up with and then there's the family there's friends that you that become family and then there's a family that gets created through bonds of like suffering that's a different family there's that part of grieving then there's the actual mental health part right there so there's the communal right release and then there's the stuff that you keep up here right that you don't even not that you just can't work through and that's not necessarily a person's fault that's actually from what i've learned is like um is part of what your brain does to protect yourself from trauma so that then takes on another element on how you're going to address those things through therapy how you're going to just address those things with time the guilt of surviving the guilt of you can put yourself through all sorts of mental gymnastics on what if I went right or what if I went left or what if I had stayed or what if I had moved forward in just a second more, right? And you can do that to yourself till the day you die. And those things are, are just as painful and you have to sort of work through those things. And the good thing is that I think we have more access to that and socially it's more acceptable to even ask for those things than really at any time in our history. The, I think it was in 2000, Sergeant Gonzalez, mm -hmm. right? His, the people that he, I guess, commanded. I don't know. Yep. They came for like a 50th anniversary. I think it was the naming of the USS Gonzalez. Yes. And I remember that was the first time I had ever heard that according to them, the Valley is the most, one of the most patriotic places can, yeah, in can the country. Be. Can be, can be, can be. It's hard to like really test that. If you're from here, you believe that 100%. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's other places that are pretty patriotic, but I think the valley lends itself to having young men and women who want to make something of themselves. And there's not always real opportunities, or maybe in the past there haven't been real opportunities to do that. And so the military lends itself as a clear, a very clear route to make something of yourself and get out of situations, whether it's a rough upbringing, whether it's poverty. I grew up very poor. And so when I think about what I had to ex give in exchange for this opportunity where you know, you have something like the GI Bill, you have something like the VA home loan, you have, you know, just an opportunity to go from poverty to middle class in one generation, which is something that doesn't always happen, right? So from 
you know, my parents didn't speak English. When I was growing up, we were we were on food stamps and we had to just survive to where I'm at now. You don't want to like again, you don't want to give all the credit to the military, but there are it is a route that you you can take and I think that when people think of the patriotism of the Rio Grande Valley, they also yes, we are patriotic. But historically we also have had a hard time finding routes and ways a lot of us to a middle class to that American dream and the military seems to be the one route that we can take that doesn't require the only investment it requires is us so I donate my body to the Marine Corps and in exchange for surviving a war I get these this opportunity right but it is a huge investment it's a gamble in essence that you take and so I'm always careful when people say like I think the valley the valley you know sends a lot of kids to the Marine Corps and it's because we're patriotic well yes yes there is that that's a big chunk of the pie when it comes to the percent but the other chunk also is a lot of us that's our that's our that's our route out that's our way into what we d- consider the American dream and if we don't if we don't acknowledge that I think we're doing ourselves uh, a disservice to ourselves and our community by saying like oh it's because we're patriotic yeah yeah we're patriotic and we also some of us don't have another choice and I think that's important to to talk about yeah that's uh like I mentioned first time I had heard that and then of course now as a history museum because we do have a panel of Pedro Cano in our exhibit talking about the racism he endured and mm-hmm. I mean obviously that's in a way kind of also why people would join the military because they also have to prove that they're American enough it's one way of assimilating yeah it's I mean in 2004 in the early aughts I don't see proving myself as an American as a reason why I joined. I see there being an opportunity. There's a little bit of duty in there, like like it's my duty to serve. Uh, I feel like I need to serve. And a little bit of it is like there's no real, I have no clear outlook if I don't do this. Like there's not much for me. I'm going to just perpetuate the same cycle if I don't do something drastic and this is about as drastic as you can get right because I was totally okay with not making it back like mentally I was like if you don't make it back they'll at least they'll take care of your mom you know that's $450,000 that's more money than she's ever seen in her entire life if you don't make it back so you really do say one way or another we're gonna make it out of this trailer home or one way or another we're gonna make it out of here and i know there's a lot of guys that have that you know and sometimes we'll we'll go the route of saying it was patriotic more than economic uh, because it's easier for other people to understand but i think poor kids will always understand the economics of decisions like that which is like what what do i have to lose i'm already at the bottom 
I got nothing to lose but my own, but my life. And when you got nothing to lose, you got everything to gain. And I didn't see myself gaining anything from college at that point because I was still poor. I mean, I was still, you know, a poor kid, but I was in college and I was going to continue to be a poor kid all the way through college. And it just didn't make any sense to me. Anything else you'd like to add? No. That I, didn't? I don't know. you have anything else? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I, it's just, um, I guess the other thing would be for people that are listening is you do have photographs. You are a photographer. Yeah. Yeah. I took photos. I tried to take photos my first deployment. Mm-hmm. I didn't like, uh, it was mostly the second part and I had film and uh, I took a couple photos that I passed on to the families of the guys that we lost and they were very appreciative appreciative of those photos that I even had them and I remember them being like the fuck are you doing with that camera boot and I was like I I always carry a camera like I had always carried a camera since I was 12 right like what are you doing and then when I had those photos they were like that's good that you took those photos it's literally the last images of these guys that exist and so then the second deployment I took more photos this time with a digital camera I had been out for like two weeks and I come back and sergeant major's like battalion commander wants to see you and I thought I was gonna get in trouble like for real because you know I was going on extra patrols to take photos and doing stupid stupid things like that and uh, it was Lieutenant Colonel Looney. He was like, Corporal Leal, I hear you have photos. You were, you've been taking photos. I was like, yes, sir. We have a battalion website. Do you mind if we use the photos on the website? And I was like, yeah, go for it. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, the families loved them. The families loved them. So I kept on taking photos that whole deployment of just like random stuff, just stuff like just us out there. And so, actually, the the library has a whole bunch of those photos because I donated it to the to the Sakula Library. You should donate to the Museum of South Texas well, History, but that's fine. Well, I didn't. <laughs> uh, at that point, they were doing they were doing something. They were doing a fundraiser, mm-hmm. and then the self portrait that I took that one is in the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. It's part of the War Photo Exhibit. Um, yeah, that one. When you showed it for the first time, I was like, "Whoa!" Yeah, that actually was a photo for Ashley because I was taking photos of everybody else and I took that photo and it was a a great like embarrassment to be asked by the museum for that photo why would you because it was like man I have so many more photos that I took and I consider to be good good photos and you want this photo that I took for my girlfriend because <laughs> I mean, I get it, and but it's such a good it's photo. It's a good photo, but the reason is because it's a self-portrait, and it was the only one in that exhibit of a living photographer. Mm. I spoke to the curators, and they were like, we always wanted this photo. And I was like, okay, well, at least, yeah, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I'm in the same book with, like, Jim Notway and, like, all these great, 
you know, Robert Kappa and all these photographers that I grew up idolizing. Um, but it's a photo of myself, <laughs> which is, like I said, it's a little, it's, it's a little embarrassing. But I, I recently I started thinking about like what like my grandkids and great grandkids, you know, when you think about like being forgotten, is it it's going to happen to all of us? You get forgotten forever. There is a little bit of like, oh, it's in this book. You know, it's okay. We're okay. That's not so bad. If like one photo you took, you want to be known for all these other things, but that one photo you took for your girlfriend in war somehow made it into this historical book. I'm sure the grandkids will get a kick out of it. Maybe yeah, one day. For sure. I'll <laughs> be like, oh, well, oh, that was so cute. Yeah. yeah. It's like, well, what are you gonna do? It's it was it is a it is nice. But yeah, that's the whole photo, the whole photo thing, which was like a different, a different aspect of life, but a very, uh, very much a way for me to keep my sanity through creativity. Uh, it still is. It's uh, how I decompress. It's not my job. It's just something that I do. Sometimes I'll do it for just because, just because I want to. And it is my outlet, is my creative outlet. And it's something I hold on to. That and physical activity is something that I hold on to and I don't compromise it and how I sort of stay grounded. So. No. And then, so you're working now at the Veterans? The vet, uh, Department of Veterans Affairs. I work uh, communications with them. And that was like a weird occurrence also because that wasn't the route that I was going to, that I was taking. I was taking a journalism route. And I had even because I have an environmental science degree and a communications degree. So I was looking at really working for en environmental like mitigation firms, but working more in the, the communication side. And something happened where they were just looking for, they had started a digital media engagement team and they were really looking for like veterans who could write, make video, and shoot photos like the full pack right what we yeah. were taught mm -hmm. which is to be the full package. package and i fit that bill and so been doing that since 2013 but i i gave the whole i you know i worked for a newspaper in utah the month that i left they fired like half the staff in the paper so obviously like you're just like yeah that wasn't that's not a solid way anymore of sort of making a living. I had tried combat photography, freelancing. I had gone to Syria for for a month in January of 2013 and was in Aleppo, was like on the front lines taking photos. I think I sold one photo to Vice for 75 bucks. So you just realize like, you know, you hear that you hear like the old like you romanticize the old combat photographers, but it's a different time. It's a different way of doing things, right? And you realize really quickly, like, this is not how you raise a, a family. This is not how you make a life. So I had tried all those things that I had in my mind wanted to do and didn't so much fail at them, but just realized that it wasn't, I wasn't going to be able to do them and be a present father and husband. So... I sort of worked my way through freelance, newspaper, and then took this job. And even though it's not like my dream job, 
it has allowed me to facilitate the other things that I do consider to be a dream. You know, if I think about who I was at the age of 10 and what my dream was at 10 and what my dream was at 15 and 18, I am living that dream, which is just being okay. <laughs> right? I didn't want much when I was a kid. So I need I always have to remind myself like, hey, you didn't like all you wanted was a house. <laughs> like all you wanted was stability. So let's just enjoy that. Let's just be okay with just being stable and kind of like realizing how far you've you've come and not always looking for the next thing, always grasping for the next thing because you can spend your whole life grasping for the next thing and then you look around, yeah, you're on top, but you're all alone up top. So it's taken me a while. So the better part of 10 years to be like, hey, you know what? We're okay. This is okay. Wow. Well, thank you, Ray, for sharing your stories. Like I mentioned earlier before we recorded, not many veterans want to share their stories, so I appreciate that. And, you know, just giving respect to those who do not want to share. So thanks again. You got it. Thanks to Ray for sharing his stories and experiences. The next episode will feature Juan Ramon Garcia, a Vietnam War veteran, and he's going to share about his military experience, but also a lot about his family and growing up in the Rio Grande Valley. This podcast was produced by the Most History Communications team and edited by freelance podcast editor Leah Victoria Juarez. The song is Carpe Diem by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Follow us on Anchor to hear more about stories from the Rio Grande. Send your questions through the Anchor app. You can also subscribe to this podcast through the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Most History, Stories from the Rio Grande.